and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today, we're thrilled to be talking to Dr. Michael Sharma. Michael is a science writer, historian of science, founder of the Skeptics Society, which is one of the biggest societies of skeptics anywhere in the world, and editor-in-chief of its magazine, Skeptic. His most recent book is called Giving the Devil His Due on the free speech wars raging across the West, which is, of course, also central to our Palia project and to which you'll find a link in our show notes. But today, we want to be talking about belief, on which Michael wrote the seminal book called The Believing Brain. Um, We'll be talking about belief not just as a phenomenon related to God and extraterrestrials and all sorts of um, other things which skeptics are uh, interested in debunking, but also more generally thinking about belief as as one of the ways in which we think. Michael, we're thrilled to be talking to you. Thank you for joining the Palia podcast. Oh, well, you're welcome. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Michael, if you don't mind, I want to kick off with a bold statement that you that you uh, announce in your book, which is the following, that belief comes first, the evidence for it comes after. What, what do you mean? I mean that our brains are wired to think more like lawyers than scientists, that is to say, to win arguments, to bolster our case, to reinforce what we already believe. Uh, which we usually formed from non-empirical sources, that is to say, influences in our immediate environment, family, friends, colleagues, mentors, school, literature, pop culture, media, and so on. And then if asked to defend our belief, we come up with reasons. But those weren't the reasons usually that we initially formed our beliefs. And uh, so the, the larger picture is to what extent are our senses designed to, for what's called veridical perception, that is to say, perceiving the world as it really is. And we know from evolutionary theory that you know, uh, perceptions are very species specific, the famous example being bats uh, or maybe dolphins with echolocation systems. Whatever a shark looks like to my brain, it surely doesn't look like that to a bat uh, or to a dolphin's brain, or, or, or say a, a tree branch to a, a bat, a bat's brain. You know, because they have different sensory apparatus, so uh, the image, whatever that would be on their brain, is going to be rather different from mine. And that's good enough because all you have to do is survive and reproduce and get your genes into the next generation. The purpose of evolution is not to design brains to accurately, correctly identify reality as it really is, although you have to know, you know some basics, like there really is a tree limb there or there really is a shark in the water for the dolphin. Right. But, beyond, but beyond that, uh, you know, it's more like um, if we want to get social about it, you know, since we're a social primate species, it's to you know, show our tribe, our group, 
you know, is, is the best group or we have the best arguments or we have the best theory. And, you know, so political tribalism is very much about winning arguments, not about figuring out what's true. So, you know, we might make the distinction back to where I began and I'll finish that answer here that, you know, lawyers, their job is not to figure out what happened. They're, they're, they're hired to defend their client. Let's say you're a defense attorney. And, you know, like uh, Alan Dershowitz famously says, you know, he didn't even ask OJ if he did it. He doesn't want to know that that's not his job to figure out what OJ actually did. His job was, you know, just to get him off. That's it. And if he if he doesn't try to do that, he's not doing his job. He could be fired. Whereas a scientist would think, well, no, I, I don't want to win or lose. I just want to figure out what actually happened. So those are the kind of two different ways of thinking about it. And um, our, our brains are wired more like the, the lawyer than the scientist. That's a beautiful metaphor. Um, why do you think belief is sort of so unimportant for us? It's critically important to be able to see the tree branch so we don't smack into it and the shark so we don't get eaten by it and make sure that we know what kind of mushrooms we should be eating and not. There we rely on evidence. But why is evidence so unimportant to our beliefs and yet our beliefs are so important to who we are? So um, it's not that evidence is it's not that evidence isn't important. It is important once you have the belief uh, that you then find evidence to to support it. So there, we're pretty good at at uh, collecting evidence that fits and ignoring evidence that doesn't fit or counters our beliefs. So this is famously called the confirmation bias. Uh, where, for example, you look for and find confirming evidence for what you already believe and you ignore the disconfirming evidence. So once you formed a belief, say, in a particular conspiracy theory, you know, the Jews are running banking in the media. Well, then all of a sudden you're going to start noticing newspaper articles and television news stories and whatnot about, you know, this guy's doing that. Oh, he's Jewish. Oh, that explains it. And you're going to automatically ignore or rationalize away anybody who's powerful in banking or the media who's not Jewish. And so you just notice the hits, you forget the misses. That's a confirmation bias uh, under the larger umbrella of motivated reasoning. We all do it. And even scientists who are you know, trained not to do it still do it anyway. Right. And so one of the built-in mechanisms of science is this self-correcting machinery in which your colleagues are going to challenge you and they're going to look for the disconfirming evidence to try to disprove your hypothesis. So you better do it first. And that's the motivation there for the scientist to act like a scientist rather than a lawyer because of the social nature of science. The colleagues are going to challenge him on it. From an evolutionary neurological point of view, you describe our belief function as an example of patternicity, this word which I hadn't come across. And you've just given us a beautiful example in confirmation bias. We look for patterns out in the world. What is this patternicity that you describe? Why did we evolve it? Why is it helpful to us? So I, um, I coined two terms because I, I felt like the, the language of skepticism was a little short in this area, and that's patternicity and agenticity. So patternicity is the tendency to find meaningful patterns in both meaningful and meaningless noise. And the other terms like ap apophenia and, and one other, you know, they only talk about misperceiving things that is seeing, the, uh, seeing a pattern in random noise that's not actually there. Uh, I wanted a broader term. That is to say, um, some patterns are real, some are not. How do we know the difference? So patternicity is the tendency for the brain to wire up and find connections, wh whether the connections are real or not. 
And therefore we need some other tool to discern whether the pattern is real or not. And, that, and that's called science. So my thought experiment on how this evolved is imagine you're a hominid on the plains of Africa three and a half million years ago. Your name is Lucy. <laughs> you're a little <laughs> tiny uh, Australopithecine afarensis and you're a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? Well, if you think the rustle in the grass is a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, that's a type one error, a false positive. And, and you just kind of move around it or you're, you, you run off. But if you think that the rustle in the grass is just the wind and it turns out it's a dangerous predator, that's a type two error. That is to say, you've, you've misperceived it and your lunch, that's a, that's a high cost error to make. So my argument is that um, we evolved the tendency to make more type one errors than type two errors. That is to say, assume that most rustles in the grass are dangerous predators rather than the wind, just in case. And therefore, this is the basis of magical thinking, superstition, connecting A to B, and assuming that A causes B or A is this equivalent of B or it's a proxy for B. And therefore, that's called learning. I mean, that's a good thing to do to survive and reproduce and flourish. Again, not to not per, veridical perception where you get it right every time. For example, why, why can't you just wait and collect more data about the rustle in the grass? Well, the answer is predators don't um, wait around for prey animals to collect more data. You know, they, they, they try to stay upwind so the scent can't be uh, tracked as data or, you know, they're camouflaged or they stalk and, and sneak up on their prey. All that is to prevent the uh, potential prey animal from collecting enough data to make a correct decision. So since the prey animal can't do that, it has to make a snap decision. And, and so the tendency is there to err on the side of caution. That is, be a little paranoid. Uh, by the way, this is in, in, in later work, I've applied this to conspiratorial thinking. You know, most conspiracies have to do with negative things, bad things, people cheating, people taking advantage, people uh, uh, collaborating in secret to gain some unfair financial or moral or political advantage over others without them knowing about it. It's, it's always something negative. And and the reason for that is the negativity bias. That is, there's more ways for things to go bad than go good. So we've also evolved this propensity to notice bad things and pay close attention to them. That's not always good for optimism. It makes us more pessimistic. <clears throat> but again, as, a, as kind of an evolutionary logic behind it, that makes perfect sense. On some level, it sort of sounds like, as you said, learning. It sounds like thinking, extrapolating, trying to make sense of the world around us. That's... Is that not kind of what the human mind does at its most intelligent? So what's the, what, what's the flaw in this method of interpreting the world? Well, that's, that's the point. It's not a flaw. It's not a bug in the system. It's a feature. It's a good thing that we find patterns because, again, a lot of patterns are real. So let, let's take something like uh, do CO2 gases cause global warming? Well, there's a pattern for this, you know, the, the famous uh, uh, graph that Al Gore uh, demonstrated quite strikingly visually in his film, An Inconvenient Truth, where you have this jagged sawtooth curve going uh, ever upward of increase in CO2 gases followed with a small lag time behind of the earth getting warmer. So is that a true pattern or is that a false pattern? That is, are we seeing a pattern that isn't really there or is it really a pattern? Well, you know, so for 25 years of climate science, you know, climate scientists have determined 
yes, that is a real pattern. There is a causal link uh, to uh, between these two variables. And this gets to a deeper question since you asked, um, you know, what, how do we determine causality in the first place? David Hume famously initially defined it as a, co a constant conjunction. A happens to B happens, A happens to B happens, A happens to B happens, and the brain thinks, huh, I think there must be a link between A and B. That's called learning. Again, the rustle in the grass, the dangerous predator. Uh, but as Hume then famously debunked his own definition, you know, the rooster crows and the sun rises, and this happens every morning. So it's natural to think that, that, right. that the rooster thinks, hey, hey, I can <laughs> I can make the sun come up, watch. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, then he, uh, Hume uh, gave a second definition, which is a counterfactual theory of, of, of causality. That is to say, if you remove A, does B happen anyway? So you silence the rooster, and the sun comes up is like, oh, okay, so it wasn't the rooster after all. <laughs> it, it was something else, right? So, you know, if you remove the CO2 gases, would the uh, earth start cooling? Well, yes, we, we you know, we know of examples uh, where, you know, there's variation from year to year, some time period, some time period where these fluctuate and the earth's temperature also fluctuates. So you remove the one, you, you, you still have the other or you don't. And that, that's another way of determining causality. So again, I'm kind of getting a philosophy of science here for you, but, but back to the brain, you know, that's uh, again, our, you know, we, science is so new, this whole like discussion of what is causality, how do we determine it? You know, the, the, you know, the randomized controlled experiment in which you hold all other uh, variables constant and you vary just this one that you're interested in, you know, a drug treatment say, you know, that's all new. That's just like barely a, a century and a half old, two centuries at most, going back to Hume, maybe two and a half centuries. You know, the human mind evolved over millions of years of, of understanding causality anecdotally. That is just to say things that happen in our environment. So again, it's not that we're bad at it. I mean, gosh, we could do quantum physics for gosh sakes. I mean, it's, it's amazing what we've been able to figure out about the world. But in our day-to-day -day lives, that's not how most of us uh, think, you know, we just go about our days noticing anecdotes and, you know, I vaccinated my kid and then, you know, a month later he was diagnosed with autism. There must be something to that. Yeah. Okay. That's just an anecdote, but you know, it's a powerful one. And, you know, Richard Dawkins makes this point that we evolved in middle land in Africa where, you know, things are of a middling size, like say from an ant to a mountain range and they move at a middling speed, you know, walking speed to running speed or maybe lightning at the fastest, which you can barely see. You know, so things like uh, uh, global warming or evolution that happen over happens over thousands or tens of thousands or millions of years or, or continents drifting, you know, we just uh, quantum physics, expanding universes, galaxy. I mean, there's nothing in our world that we evolved in to, to make any sense of these things. You know, they, they're just counterintuitive. It's just like, this is just mystifying how this could be. Gotcha. And so it requires extra steps called science. So... Um, Michael, we've identified this fundamental capacity for pattern discerning on behalf of humans. Um, but you also describe another activity that we do. You call it agenticity. You say, and I quote you, we are natural born supernaturalists driven by our tendency to find meaningful patterns and then kicker and impart to them intentional agency. Help us understand that last part. Well, let's go back to our hominid on the plains of Africa and here in the rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or just the wind? What's the difference between a dangerous predator and the wind? 
wind is an inanimate force. Uh, a predator is an agent with intention and its intention is to eat me. Therefore, I should be very cautious about it more than just an inanimate object or force. So that idea of imparting agency to things, although I should note in, in many animistic um, animistic worldviews, you know, even the wind has uh, you know, agency to it. You know, it's the gods behind it or, or everything has some kind of agency to it. So that idea can expand quite dramatically. But the idea is that it's better if I assume intention uh, because therefore I can take it more seriously uh, rather than just things happen, that things happen for a reason. And this comes from, you know, all the way back to, you know, conspiracy theories or modern religious beliefs or beliefs in spiritualism or angels and demons and so on. You hear this meme amongst uh, uh, religious believers in particular, everything happens for a reason, right? You know, what, and this could be, you know, fate, you know, fate or um, synchronicity or some kind of destiny all, all the way up to, you know, the evangelical belief that, you know, God, God you know, uh, knows the fall of every sparrow. Mm. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of directing everything I do from finding a parking space at the mall to getting this job or finding, finding this right. person to marry and, and so on. That um, is a much easier explanation of how the world works. It's like um, I was just writing about uh, QAnon recently and, uh, you know, this whole idea that, um, you know, everything happens for a reason uh, applies to this. Let me just read you this, uh, this opening thing I got here from a QAnon posting. Have you ever wondered why we go to war or why you never seem to be able to get out of debt? Why there is poverty, division and crime? What if I told you there was a reason for it all? What if I told you it was done on purpose? Beautiful. <laughs> and then I went on to say, you know, yeah. these things, th these things are curious. You know, why are there, why is there war? Why is there crime and so on? Well, it turns out there's scholars that do nothing but study these problems. And, and, and you know, they just have elaborate explanations with, you know, a half a dozen different variables operating at the same time. And you have to run these elaborate regression equations to uh, tease out which is the most influential variable that causes crime to go up or down. And, and there's great debates, you know, is it the broken windows theory of crime or is it this or poverty or whatever, right? But, you know, to the average person, it's like, screw that. I mean, <laughs> what if there's just like 12 guys in London called the Illuminati? On evolutionary terms, I get why all of us want simple explanations because it just hurts our head to come up with the complicated ones. But what's with the intentionality? Why do we so yearn for intentionality? Why do we need it to be 12 guys in a room in London? Why does it need to be the Illuminati, the Bilderberg group, a bad guy? Um, or God, what's the point of that intentionality in evolutionary terms? Well, the point would be uh, it, it brings into sharper focus uh, the, the problem you want to identify. And I, I think there's another cognitive process here where a, kind of a, a sense of self and self-identity in your head, and therefore it's easy to project that into other things. So this is called theory of mind, where you know, we, we mind read each other. I don't mean right. psychically. I mean, yeah. you know, I imagine what you're thinking and you imagine what I'm thinking. And then I imagine that you're thinking what I'm thinking and so on. <laughs> All human relationships is based on this mind reading. And we have to kind of project ourselves into the other person's shoe and think, well, is he going to find this funny if I tell this joke? And if right. I were him and I heard it, would I think it's funny? So on. Okay. So, you know, agenticity is a little bit like that. I'm projecting my own into, I'm, I'm an intentional agent. 
I walk around with intention and make behaviors based on those intentions. I bet other people do. And then it's a small step from other people to animals have intention. They do, you know, and so on. And then all of a sudden you're, 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 you're concocting demons and angels and gods and, and secret conspiracies and, and, and so it's pattern matching again, on some level, it's your understanding that because you understand the world through your own agenticity, it makes sense for you to for you to describe external phenomenon to you via the lens of agenticity too. Yeah, that's gotcha. right. Um, I there is a wonderful story that I have to ask you to tell about B.F. Skinner's pigeons. The reason I want you to tell it is because it talks both to all species' capacity to make patterns and to that issue of agenticity. Could you just re- could you recount that experiment for us? Yeah, so Skinner famously in 1954 uh, put these pigeons on a random variable schedule of reinforcement. That is, instead of saying, I'm going to reinforce the pigeon every uh, every time, after every six pecks of the key, or, you know, three on the right and two on the left, and then he'll get a reward. And, you know, these, these, you know, they're bird brains, but they're not that dumb. They figure out the pattern, they figure out how they can get more food. Uh, so in, in one experiment, he just put it on a random schedule where the, there was no pattern at all. And yet the pigeons all figured out that there was some pattern just by uh, whatever they were doing just before they got rewarded is what was repeated. So Skinner famously defined a reinforcement as anything that causes the, the, the organism to repeat its behavior. So maybe just before it got this random reinforcement, it did, you know, th- it did two twists to the left and one to the right. And then all of a sudden it got rewarded. So it thinks, oh, it thinks. <laughs> it just kind of remembers automatically. Well, let's see, I, I did two counterclockwise moves and then one clockwise move. And then I got, I'm going to just repeat that. So basically wow. the organisms, and this applies to rats as well and humans, <laughs> just go to Las Vegas to the slot machines and watch people with their elaborate superstitious rituals that they, they go through. Uh, so all organisms do this. And again, it's just it's that A happens, then B happens, whatever you were doing just before you got better. And this explains a lot of all so-called alternative medicine, like uh, homeopathy. Homeopathy remedies do nothing. By definition, there's nothing in there right. uh, of the original substance because they, they filter it out. Well, what's it, what's it actually doing? Well, it, what really is going on is... Uh, you, whatever you did just before your headache went away or your, your tumor went into remission or, or, or your, your aching knee got better, that's what gets the credit. So it's not just homeopathy, of course. It could have been that you, you, you went and did a meditation session or you got more sleep or you ate this or that uh, remedy, whatever it is, that's what gets the credit. So again, it's that part of that anecdotal yeah. thinking. Which is, which is wonderful. There's a beautiful example in humans, which I think all of us would recognize. We've all either drank too much of a substance and made us feel sick or eaten too much of that substance and made us feel sick. And forever after, there is no way you'll be able to smell the thing that you ate or drank without replicating that nausea. It kicks back in. That's pattern making, live pattern making in humans, right? It's exactly what's been going on. You've taught yourself. So there you have a particularly important one called aversion. Um, uh, uh, what is aversion training or aversion connection there where if it's something that's toxic that you could die from, it's probably good that you get it in a, in a what's called one trial learning. Uh, that is to say, you, you you drink too much, in my case, in college, drank too much red wine and, <laughs> and got violently sick. And I couldn't drink red wine for years after that. Because if you're, again, back at the hominid on the plains of Africa and you, and you eat a poison mushroom and you get violently ill and you don't die, lucky you, don't try that again. Right. So uh, it, there's, it, there's not enough time to, 
to run like a hundred experiments and see which it, you know, what's actually going on there. If it, that, that it's that mushroom, but not that one, that's slightly different color and that one's safe and that one's not, you know, it's probably just better to be repulsed or, uh, by all mushrooms, just in case. In your research, it sounds as if there are certain types of people who are more prone to seeing patterns in the world, more prone to beliefs um, th than others. There's a, therefore a, physical element maybe a biochemical element to belief is there a is there a belief chemical in the body are there certain kinds of certain kinds of chemicals which enhance belief well in the in the believing brain i wrote about dopamine because dopamine is uh, associated with learning and reward and reinforcement again back to skinner uh, and so if you are given extra doses of dopamine, which, which is done with certain disorders um, like uh, Parkinson's, because Parkinson's attacks the dopaminergic neurons in the brain and kills them. So Parkinson's patients have less dopamine, which is why they shake because dopamine is also involved in controlling muscular movements in the motor cortex. And so I speculated there that uh, perhaps there's variation. Well, first of all, back up. We know there's variation between people on all traits, including how gullible or skeptical you are. So some people are just inherently more skeptical, some are more gullible. So for example, on surveys, people that tick the box for one conspiracy theory tend to believe most of them. Or people that tick the box for astrology also think Bigfoot is real and, and psychics can really speak to the dead and, and, and whatnot. So there seems to be some kind of tendency to believe these things are not based on something. So of course, upbringing, culture, all that makes a difference. But in the brain, I was speculating about dopamine. Maybe people that are higher in dopamine tend to find more patterns and connections. And I made sure to point out that this is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, artists and, and musicians and architects and scientists and so on who are very creative at, at coming up with new patterns or finding new patterns. Uh, you know, we, we reward them with Nobel prizes and with, uh, you know, with big contracts for, 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 for music and art and whatnot and commissions and so on. That's a good thing. Uh, but the problem is, is, is maybe if you're so open-minded to finding new patterns, when it comes to what, what we want to know is an empirical truth, is it really true or not? Maybe you're too open to, pretty much every claim that comes down the pike being real. So I, in the book, I use an uh, example of Kerry Mullis, who I knew who's Nobel Prize winner for the, uh, the, the PCR uh, technique of, of, uh, of analyzing DNA. And that, but he also, I, I used to meet him at uh, these TED-like conferences called Adventures of the Mind for these advanced high school kids. And he was a super interesting guy, really smart and just interested in everything. But he was totally convinced, you know, astrology was real and aliens were here. Uh, HIV doesn't cause AIDS. He was skeptical of climate change. I mean, he just pretty much everything we debunk in skeptic, he, you know, he's right on board with it. I'm like, oh my God, Gary, you know, this guy, you're obviously smart. So it is an intelligence that's the problem here, it's something else. And I just got the impression he was just super open minded. Plus, he, apparently, he did a lot of mind altering uh, 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 chemicals. And, uh, you know, maybe that also affected you know, his dopamine levels or how, how open he was. Again, it's not bad to be open, you know, but, uh, but the problem is if you're so open-minded, you, you know, that then everything is true. And if everything is real and true, then nothing is, how do you know? And, uh, and that's the problem. That's fascinating. So this idea that your, your capacity to form beliefs can be stronger or weaker. We've spoken about um, 
some cognitive processes which are sort of hardwired in us. We've spoken about the belief drug dopamine and the fact that some people have it a little bit more than others and tend to be able to find or discover or imagine patterns in the world that are maybe not there. But you you also talk about a fascinating experiment by Michael Persinger and his famous God helmet, um, which leads you to say we sort of we're sort of hardwired to believe in God. Can you explain what Persinger did and what that tells us about how belief works in the world in our heads? Sorry. Yeah, Persinger is interested in uh, kind of drilling down to the neurology or the neuroscience of not just God beliefs, but I mean, he called it the God helmet. It's this motorcycle helmet with uh, elect electrical solenoids on the side that bombard your temporal lobes with these electromagnetic waves. It's relatively harmless. They're very light, uh, something like a slightly stronger than a cell phone signal, say, but you're not getting zapped and harmed. His idea was to, to look for, first of all, a person who kind of accepts at face value the stories people tell of their paranormal experiences, and he wonders, is there something going on in the brain to explain it? Well, a lot of times there's nothing going on because there's nothing to explain. They've misperceived what they thought happened. But let's set that aside for a minute. You know, what he wanted to know is maybe, um, you know, all paranormal supernatural activity is a product of these you know, neural processes that are happening. Well, what would that, what would be the equivalent of that in the environment? The equivalent of solenoids on a motorcycle helmet bombarding your temporal lobes, you know, and, and here he kind of goes off the rails, I think, suggesting that, for example, earthquake activity causes these uh, electrical fields in the environment that you are living in. And so you have these experiences. I don't think there's anything to that. I think it's more probably internal, you know, just like Oliver Sacks talking about, you know, all of his books or every chapter is some patient he had that had some weird uh, experience. And, you know, he, he drills down and pinpoint, oh, it's right here at, you know, V1 in the visual cortex, or it's here in the temporal lobes at the fusiform gyrus, which is the facial recognition software of your brain. And that's fried because of a tumor or a stroke. And therefore this person has face blindness. You know, I think it's more like that. There's just some neurochemical thing that, uh, that's causing the experience to happen internally, not, not an external event at all. It sounds as if belief is also heritable, right? There are lots of twin studies which suggest that um, identical twins share, uh, are more likely to, 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 to share beliefs than say fraternal twins who are themselves more likely to either believe or not believe than normal siblings. So there's, is there a sort of belief gene? Yeah, I think um, the research on this is pretty clear now with uh, twin studies conducted by behavioral geneticists that much of our temperament, personality, and preferences, which incorporate beliefs, are highly heritable. That is to say, the differences between people are largely accountable by their genes. So, for example, uh, just take something simple like um, uh, you know, shyness, you know, introversion versus extroversion on the big five personality dimensions, you know, identical twins are, are very similar in those characteristics compared to fraternal twins and, and people raised in different homes and even twins raised in, in different homes and so forth. So we know there's a genetic component there to something like that. Now, when you get to something like, well, uh, spirituality or, or religiosity, Twins are more likely to be similar in terms of their religiosity and spirituality than our non-twins. Well, what, what could that possibly mean? It can't be a gene for being a Catholic or something like that. Well, no, uh, but it's, you know, the tendency to, you know, want to 
one of them say a religious community. And if you happen to live in a country that's highly Catholic or highly Protestant, like Germany, where my wife is from, it's pretty well split 50-50 Protestant Catholic, you know, so you're going to be one or the other. Of course, you're going to gravitate to one of those because that's the, you know, cultural element. And then if we go to like Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, you know, what, you know, again, twins are similar on those. What could that possibly mean? There can't be a gene for being a Democrat. No, but you tend to like to hang around people that are like you, that feels better. And, you know, you like certain characteristics about the environment. You know, that let's say you're high in openness to experience. You like to travel a lot. Uh, you're open to new ideas and trying new things. Well, the people that score high on those features also tend to be more liberal. They travel more. They're more open to different cultures and therefore they're more open to say immigration policy and more open immigration policy. Therefore, they're going to drift toward the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. And that's how we end up with those kind of features. And from there, you can go, you know, from any direction to religion or beliefs in the supernatural or whatever, there's going to be a, a genetic component to it. That makes lots of sense. Michael, I want to end with Spinoza's conjecture, which I love. Um, your rephrasing of it is, belief comes quickly and naturally. Skepticism is slow and unnatural, and most people have a low tolerance for ambiguity. You've already touched upon this, the fact that humans are much quicker to jump to anecdote than they are to evidence, and there's a fundamental difference between the two here. But um, if that's the case, um, how do we keep ourselves mentally healthy? What's your, what are your mental keep fit exercises? Yeah. First of all, since I, I wrote that in The Believing Brain, let's see, that was 2011. Um, there's been new research showing that we're maybe not as gullible and maybe we're more skeptical than I had uh, written about then because there's new research showing uh, that is hard to convince people to say change political parties, change religions, give up beliefs uh, when you present them with, with say, new evidence. Uh, because again, I got this part right that we, you know we're committed to our certain beliefs. Uh, but for example, Hugo Mercier in his book *Not Born Yesterday* uh, makes a, a point that most political ads, most corporate advertising, is a complete waste of money. Uh, almost nobody changes their mind or buys a new product because they saw a commercial or an ad, or you know, the, for this candidate or that car or whatever. And that, uh, you know, most people don't join cults, for example. I mean, uh, I write a lot about cults and the characteristics of cults and why people join cults, but most people don't join cults, <laughs> you know, and there's, you know, like tens of thousands of self-help movements and groups and religions and sects and this and that in the world. And, and most of them are harmless. They don't become cults. And, you know, most people are, uh, you know, disinclined to join a cult that, you know, that's damaging and so forth. So it, it may be that we're not that gullible. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that, actually. You know, it's a more optimistic view of human nature than I had written about initially. And, uh, and so that's good. But the problem obviously still exists of like political tribalism. You know, that, that what's emerged in the last four years is, you know, this whole um, a bubble, you know, this media, these media bubbles we live in, these silos where, you know, if you're liberal, you only read the New York Times. If you're conservative, you only read the Wall Street Journal. Uh, or if you're, you know, conservative, you watch Fox News and, and listen to conservative talk radio. And if you're liberal, you don't, you listen to other shows or watch Rachel Maddow or whatever. Uh, so the solution to this is, is force yourself to ex be exposed to other 
positions. You know, if you're a pro-lifer, you know, read what the pro-choice positions are and vice versa. You know, if you're a liberal, read the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages to see what these people are thinking about. How good are your arguments uh, if you don't even know what the other side is arguing? They're not very good. You know, this is the point I make in giving the devil his due, you know, quoting John Stuart Mill, he who knows only his own side doesn't even know that. You got to know what the other position is. You got to force yourself to talk to people that are different from you. And this back to science, you know, this is what science does is this idea of, you know, to make sure you haven't gone off the rails uh, before you put it into print, you know, talk to one of your colleagues and say, you know, I have this idea, I, you know, I, just to make sure I haven't gone off the rails. Can you take a look at this and give me some feedback? Okay. Particularly somebody who would not tend to agree with you, or you wouldn't want to ask a student this because they're going to, Think, well, I'm going to tell him what I, I think he wants to, me to tell him. No, that's not what you want. You want a so-called team of rivals, people that don't like you or disagree with you or motivated to find something wrong with your ideas. That's who you want in your circle, along with your friends and people who agree with you, of course. Michael, that's a beautiful place to end. It's very much what Palia is trying to do, um, and it's very much up our alley. This has been a thrilling conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I hope we get to talk to you again about your, oh, your latest book. Well, and, and again, one of the solutions to this problem is, is people like you and your site. This is, we just need more of that. You know, just this kind of open conversation and dialogue. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.